0: We'll be in First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen and following. And as you're turning there, let me remind you that First Peter is a letter and a, uh, an epistle written by the ancient missionary and apostle Peter to a group of Christians that have been scattered. They have been persecuted. They are struggling in a variety of ways, and he is seeking to shepherd them from afar. Now, the passage that we have before us today is a doozy. In fact, one commentator, Martin Luther, well-known scholar, pastor, reformer, he had this to say about this text that we're going to look at. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand, and I cannot explain it, and there has been no one who has explained it. So, this morning, our confusion is in good company with Martin Luther. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from this text. It doesn't mean that we won't be helped by this text. It just means that we approach it with the right heart and the right mindset, and I'll talk more about that in just a bit. But first, let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and we'll begin our journey. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and illuminate this text to us, We pray that we'd be informed in our knowledge of Scripture, transformed by the renewing of our minds, conformed to the image of Christ, and recommissioned on the Great Commission. Lord, help me, frail as I am, to serve us well in this time. In Jesus' good name, amen. Well, there will be three points in this passage today. The first and the last will be drawn directly from the text, but the second one I want to give as somewhat of an approach to how to handle a passage like this. And I believe that it will help us not just in untangling the web that is here, but also in untangling some of the situations of life. Now, let's jump into verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So the first point is this, don't miss the gospel gold that is in this passage. You know, this one little verse right here, one commentator said it is perhaps the most succinct and yet profound statement in the New Testament on the doctrine of the atonement. We see Jesus dealing with broken humanity's predicament in three different ways right here in this one verse. Let's unpack it. It says, For Christ has also suffered once for sins. Now, what we're talking about here is the carrying forward of what happened in the Old Testament. And you might remember from the big story of the Bible that the way sins were dealt with before Jesus came is that it was through a variety of uh, things under the umbrella of the sacrificial system. Uh, There were many offerings that had to be made, many sacrifices of animals that had to take place. And all of these things were to deal with to a degree though not fully and finally, the sins of the people before a holy God. And what Peter is reminding his audience of, and us as well, is that when Jesus came, he put an end to that because his sacrifice was so full and so powerful and so efficacious, if you will, that his one-time offering of himself fulfilled the need for any and all of those sacrifices once and for all, that he paid the full penalty and payment for our sins, so that never again would an animal have to be sacrificed because he himself had been sacrificed. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And let me tell you, this is really good news. Because, I don't know if you know this, but we're big fat sinners. We sin every day, all day long, in various ways. Some we know, some we don't. And it is so good to be reminded that Jesus Christ paid the full and final price for those sins. This syncs up with what the writer of Hebrews said as well. He said, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. And I think our response to this needs to be one of immense and abiding gratitude that we need to be thankful for what the Lord has done for us. We need to be sharing that good news with other people. We need to be, as some writers say, exulting in the glory of the gospel because, friends, this is truly a unique tenet in all of the pantheon of spiritualities that, are out there, that is out there, and it is one of the hallmarks of Christian doctrine itself that Jesus Christ suffered once, for sins. But that's not all. (laughs) He also says here, the righteous for the unrighteous. And part of what he's getting at here is what we might call the substitutionary nature of the atonement. That Jesus took what we were deserving of upon himself. This is right in line with 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God." And again, friends, what wonderful news this is. We had nothing to offer the God of the universe except our sin. And Jesus took it upon himself, and he died in our place so that we might become friends with God. The righteous laid down his life for the unrighteous. And again, what should our response be? It should be abiding gratitude that we live our lives in awe of the gospel in awe of the glory of God, that we seek to share that good news with other people, that we seek by the Holy Spirit's help with the help of the community around us to live in obedience to the Bible that shares this good news with us that this should be the engine the drive shaft the, the 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 reason for our reason in all of our lives that we the unrighteous had a substitutionary uh, offering made for us so that we might be righteous as well now finally He crystallizes the purpose here as well. That, so it's a purpose clause here, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. And again, just thinking about how all this comes together, that we who were once aliens and strangers have now been made friends, that we who were once not a people have now been made a people for His own possessions, that we might proclaim the excellencies of all that He is that we who were once far off has, have now been brought near. And again, immense joy, gratitude, thankfulness, and sharing with others. And friends, if you have already turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus today, and you're following Him, I know that is welling up in your heart now. But maybe you are watching this or hearing this today, and this is news to you. Or maybe you come to this moment today and your plan for trying to make yourself right with God is to simply try to be as good as you can and hope that God grades on the curve at the end of your life. Friends, can I tell you the good news of the gospel from this passage and from all of the Bible? That plan is not going to work. But His plan is fully and finally finished. And if you will turn from your sin and trust in Christ, trust in what this passage is saying, that Jesus Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that He might bring you to God. If you will trust in Him and that message and you will submit the leadership of your life to Him, friend, He will save you. And if that strikes a chord with you today, please, admit that you're a sinner, believe in Jesus, confess your sins to Him, and reach out to us. We want to help you on your spiritual journey. Shoot us an email, refugefranklin at gmail.com, and we want to help you take the next step in your journey with God. But this one little verse is simply a gold mine full of gospel gold, isn't it? We want to be thankful for it. We want to be changed by it. We want to be inspired by it. We want to be compelled by it to share this good news with as many people as we can. That would have been Peter's offer and reminder for the struggling community so long ago, and that is Peter's reminder for us today, no matter where we find ourselves on life's path, to be inspired, to be changed, to be helped by the good news of the gospel. And then that gets us to verses 19 and 20. And here's where the hill begins to become quite steep. I found the uh, writing of, of one commentator helpful on this. He said this. He said, His words, being Peter's, were no doubt clear to those who first heard them, but they have been hard for later generations to understand. I couldn't agree more. That was Martin Luther's experience. That was certainly my experience this week. And we might have that same joint experience together at this moment. So here, let me read this for us, and we'll begin to unpack it. (laughs) Verse 19, "...in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." Now, I think there are several questions that begin to bubble up to the surface here, aren't there? The first one would be, who are the spirits in prison of which Peter is speaking? Are they unbelievers who died? Are they fallen angels? In addition, what was it that Jesus preached to them? And when did he preach to these people or beings? All of these questions are the questions that are stewed into trying to interpret this passage and as we do so i would want to point out what another commentator said that when you actually try to answer all of these questions there are at least 180 different positions that people have taken or you could hypothetically take on this very passage so these are very learned scholarly people that have come before us pastors that have labored and worked hard in the text for years and years and years, and they come out in all different places. And I think when we look at that, that actually leads us to our second principle. And that is <coughs> that great complexity requires great humility. Great complexity requires great humility. Now that doesn't mean that we're not gonna say what we think that, or what I think that this text means in just a moment. I absolutely will. I'll give you the support for where I come out with this. But I also want to understand that all of these scholars that have gone before us, 180 different positions here, they're going to be people who love Jesus, who love the Bible, and they're going to look at this, and they're going to interpret these things in different ways. And since this is not a cardinal point, so to speak, this is not about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, this is not about whether or not we can trust in the Bible, those kinds of things. First-tier issues, it's certainly not like that. When we approach a passage like this in particular, we need great humility. We need to be able to say, hey, listen, we're gonna do what we can, we're gonna study this as best we can, but if we get to heaven one day and we realize that, hey, you know, I was wrong about this, I'm not gonna be a bit surprised. And listen, that kind of attitude, that kind of posture, let's do good research, but let's also understand, hey, this, there's difficult things in life as well as in Bible interpretation, this kind of principle, it's not just gonna serve us in trying to rightly divide the word of truth, it's gonna help us in all other facets of life as well. Because if we have that kind of humility, it's gonna help us in how we parent, it's gonna help us in how we function in the workplace, it's gonna help us in our marriages, it's just gonna help us be a more affable, a more kind, a more easy to get along with person in all different facets of life. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't have convictions, but it means that we are very strong about the things that we need to be strong about. But then also, even in that strength, we, we, be, behold, we, uh, we come forward with it, there we go, in such a way that is as kind as we can. And then on these other issues that, that we, we recognize, they're just more cloudy, they're more complex, not everybody knows there's a lot of, lot of red ocean, so to speak that we walk in such a measure of humility that we can say, hey, here's what I think about this thing in life or so on, but at the end of the day, I don't know. Uh, We we may be wrong about some of this, or also (coughs) there's different ways to skin the cat, so to speak. And again, that doesn't apply to cardinal doctrines, things that really matter in the sense of eternity, but we're talking about secondary matters. And so when it comes to that kind of approach, it helps us in passages like this, and it also helps us in life in general. But let's talk directly about this text. So let's try to answer that first question here uh, in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, of course, the he here is Jesus, because he's just been talking about Jesus. But then the spirits in prison, who are those people? Well, my answer would be that they are indeed people. And the question becomes... (coughs) Uh, When did he speak to them? But let's go back a a step before that and say, who were they? So I would say, based on what he's saying here about Noah, and because they formerly did not not obey in verse 20 here, that these would have been people who were alive at the time of Noah, who eventually died (coughs) and paid the ultimate price for their disobedience. Now, I do think there's some reasonable debate here on when Jesus spoke to them okay there's one school of thought that I think has a really good case that says that Jesus was preaching to them spiritually through the words of Noah when he was preaching about the coming judgment of the flood okay that's actually what Wayne Grudem thinks he's been a big help to me through his commentary uh, here in first Peter he says that that these were people that were on the earth at the time of Noah, they uh, don't listen <laughs> to Jesus speaking spiritually through Noah. And on, on the, the comment for that, we, we know from First Peter uh, chapter one, I think it's verse eleven, that it says that that God was speaking through the Old Testament prophets, and Peter, or excuse me, Noah was serving in a prophetic capacity at that time. And then, because of their disobedience, they didn't listen. They died, they end up, uh, and now they're uh, awaiting the final judgment. And so then the question becomes, okay, so uh, did Jesus go to them after his death, before the resurrection, and preach to them there? And there's two different schools of thought. Some would say, no, he didn't, because he did that through Noah. And then the other school of thought is, yes, he did and that's part of what he was doing between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, I think there is some legitimate debate that can be had about that, but here's one thing on that question that I do know for sure. There is an idea out there that if you fall into the Jesus went and preached to them between Friday and Sunday camp, that actually says something that is completely not true. Uh, there is a school of thought uh, that says that, that Jesus would have preached a message to them to offer a second chance for salvation. So they've died, they're awaiting final judgment, and hey, here's another chance, believe in me, and you, you get to go to heaven. That, that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. Uh, but that is out there uh, in, in some capacities. So, I think what we've got to do with this is we've got to say, hey, let's be crystal clear about what we know, for example, verse 18, and let's be humble about the things that we kind of have questions with, verse 19 and verse 20. And then also this bit here about when he's talking about the eight persons that were brought safely through the water, uh, clearly he's talking about uh, Noah and his family, but then the bit about safely through the water that becomes debatable as well, and so what is what he what he seems to be saying there is that clearly God saved Noah um, and his family, and some people say it you know he he delivered them through the waters. There's a lot of Greek that goes into this as well, and so for that I think I honestly don't know exactly what he's saying there, but clearly he uses that to get into the next part to talk about. Uh, Baptism, but before we go to that, uh, let me let me say this: Why is he even talking about Noah in the first place? I think that's a very legitimate uh, question, and this would be my best guess for this. And I found this in multiple commentaries, and I actually think is a, it is a very uh, lucid uh, c- concept, and I think it would have helped both the original audience. And it will help us today. So uh, one writer, this this is actually Wayne Grudem here, uh, is talking about, he offers seven different reasons. I don't know that I'll read them all, but of why Noah would have been you know, front and center in this discussion here. And, and it has to do with, I think, a couple of things. I think that, that they would have been well-versed in the Old Testament. But then also in that, I think that, it has to do with the, the, the similarity between their two situations. So Noah at his time, uh, he was a, a minority. He was the only person breaching the truth, and literally the entire world around him is saying, you're crazy, why are you building this boat? It's never even rained, we don't want that, that's dumb, we're not gonna follow that, so on and so forth. And so that would have been similar to where these Christians that Peter was writing to, uh, that would have been a similar situation to them. They would have been persecuted. They would have certainly been a minority. They would have been preaching a very unpopular message. And so there would have been some natural kinship between what Noah experienced in his situation and their situation. Uh, In addition to that, Noah was righteous in the midst of a a, a wicked world, and Peter repeatedly exhorts them toward righteous living, toward holy living. Uh, Also, Noah, he would have witnessed boldly to those around him, Regardless of the cost, regardless of the outcome, that's the thing, thing that uh, one of the things that Peter just talked to these people about doing. Uh, just a few verses before, in addition to that, Noah knew that judgment was coming soon. And, uh, and clearly these folks would have believed that as well. So when you look at the kinship between those two, even if we're fuzzy on some of the details here, it makes good sense why Noah would be held up uh, as an example for them, as an example for us. Because as time continues along... Uh, It it certainly seems that culture is continuing to decay. It's continuing to go in the wrong direction. And I think there's going to be more and more contiguity between what Noah would have gone through, what the people that Peter was talking to would have gone through, uh, and then also uh, the the experience for us uh, here as well, both in the West and around the world. So topics like this, letters like this, they've always been relevant but I think they're going to bear out an even greater relevance uh, in the days and weeks and years to come. So that's why I think he's talking about Noah in the first place and how it can help us. We need to be faithful just like Noah was faithful, and we need to recognize that that is going to be in a very difficult situation. Okay, So that's some of the complexity of 1920 uh, and also some encouragement from it. Now let's take a look at 21 and 22. Here he says baptism, which corresponds to this. So he's drawing some connection between uh, the water, so to speak, Uh, And he's saying baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. Now, much like we did just a moment ago, and when we said, whatever he's saying here, we know he's not saying this, because the Bible doesn't teach that, we need to do the same thing here. When he says baptism now saves you, he does not mean the act of baptism saves you. Now, there are some denominations out there that actually teach that, but here's why we know that's not what the Bible is teaching. One piece of evidence is from this very verse, and then the rest of it is from the whole of Scripture. So, the first reason we know that's why he's not saying it is because... After he says, now saves you, the very next phrase says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for the good conscience so, or for a good conscience. So what he's saying here is it isn't the physical act itself that your sins don't come off in the water. Like they're not being washed away when you get baptized. And the second reason that we know uh, that that's not what the Bible teaches is that's not taught anywhere else. But then beyond that, that would equate to salvation by works. And we know from multiple places in Scripture that we aren't saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith, ultimately in the works of Jesus, not in our own works. And so he can't mean baptism the act itself saves you so what does he mean and again there's good people on different sides of this issue that really do love and value the Bible and treasure Jesus Uh, and my take at what he's getting at here is it's it's the symbolism of what baptism represents now again there's some diversity even in our own community here about uh, you know kind of how that is to be worked out but but from where I'm coming from here, there, this, it's a pointer to a spiritual reality. It is a pointer to uh, being born again, of being saved. Uh, that's what I think Peter is getting at here, and I think that's what he's saying when he says uh, an appeal to God for a good conscience. Uh, and then obviously that is wrapped up part and parcel within the resurrection uh, of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is what makes that possible. It's what makes it a reality, so on and so forth. And so when we think about this, again, this is one of those things where kind of like the verses that came before it, let's focus and zero in on the things that we can know for sure. And let's be humble uh, about the things that we are less clear on. But here's what I do also feel very confident in. Verse 22 is extremely important in this passage let's go back and take a look at it again who is uh, so he's talking about Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him and so when he gets at this he is talking about the third and final point and that is that everyone and everything is subject to the supremacy of jesus everyone and everything is subject to the supremacy of jesus and and i think this again would have been very important to where these people were remember their their lives have been totally upset they're being persecuted awful things are happening around them and surely they have begun to wonder at times man where is god what is happening have we totally missed the mark here. What in the world is going on? And so Peter says to them again, listen, no matter how it looks around you, God is still in charge. Jesus is still supreme and everyone and everything. And then he gives all this exalted language, not just people, but also uh, uh, spiritual realms and powers and so on. Everything in the cosmos, is under the command of Jesus ultimately. They have all been subjected to him. And I also think that word subjected there, I don't think that's any accident, because if you remember back to what we've seen in the eh, probably about about a month ago, what is he talking about there? we're, We're supposed to be subject to the authorities over us. And we talked about that in the home and in the workplace and all these different things. And so now he's using that same word and he's saying, listen, but at the end of the day, Everybody and everything is going to be, or is subject to Jesus, and we look forward and we think forward to the day that uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that would have been a very anchoring truth for these people, and it is also a very anchoring truth for us. And it's the kind of truth that supersedes. Whoever is in charge at any level of government, it supersedes whether or not we're treated rightly or wrongly in the workplace, whether or not our kids are maligned or appreciated at school. It it is one of those transcendent truths that helps buoy us in any type of trial or triumph. And I think that's why, that Peter shares it, and I also think... That's where he's going with this passage. So if we are, let's say we're wrong about everything else that we said about from 19 to 21. We know for sure that the gospel gold mine is full of gold in verse 18 and that Jesus is in charge of everything in verse 22. And I found another quote that I thought really kind of drove that point home that, that I thought was really helpful. This is from the Preeks Word commentary. They said, At present they were in danger of being lost in the fog, unable to see the victorious and distant shore. So it had been with the disciples of Jesus before them. It had appeared that Christ had lost the day when He suffered and died, and what they needed to see was the risen and ascended Lord in all of His glory. On the day after Good Friday, the full story had not yet been written. In the end, though, he would be vindicated and they would be encouraged. And friends, that should be the net effect of this passage for us. Despite all of its complexity, despite all of its remaining questions, even after our best efforts, we should be encouraged because the gospel is true and God is on the throne. The gospel is true, and God is on the throne. And so I want to close today by asking you, where do you most need those truths? Where do you most need your heart to be warmed by the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died? He suffered once for all for you, the righteous for the unrighteous. Where do you most need that? And then also, where do you most need to be reminded that no matter how it looks or how crazy it gets, that God is still in charge? I think if we take those particular needs to the Lord through this text, who knows what God might do in response? Who knows how we might be changed? Who knows how we might be helped? This week, who knows how we might turn around and in turn help somebody else this week? Friends, those truths transform. And so I want to close today by praying for that kind of transformation, that the Holy Spirit would take these truths and just rest them upon us so that we might be changed now and in the days to come. Will you join me in that prayer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a passage like this. We thank you that we know what we know and we can be humble about the things that we're less sure of. But Lord, we know that the gospel is true and we know that you are in charge. So I pray that these truths, that this passage would have its full effect in our lives, that you would help us, that you would shape us, that you would change us, that you would encourage us because of what we've learned today. And Lord, that we would live a life this week of good gospel use. That we would be faithful in whatever station, whatever environment you've placed us. And that you would do all these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' good name, amen.